we are beginning a new series, and we're going to be looking at the first portion of the life of David up to his being crowned the king. And as he is crowned the king, he will then subsequently um, find that uh, the mantle of authority weighs very heavy upon him, but he continues to look to God as the true king to lead, and we're going to stop. Once we get him crowned as king, we're going to find him facing a great temptation and subsequently falling into immorality with Bathsheba, but not unfolding all of that at the end of the series. We want to see in this first half, as it were, of the life of David, his being brought from obscurity, an unknown town, an unknown family previously, brought from obscurity as a shepherd boy and brought all the way to be the king over God's people. And we're going to learn and observe along the way that the rightful king over God's people then and now has a shepherd's heart. That he's not someone who comes from royal from royalty or from status or power and rules uh, out of that skill set but he comes to rule over God's people even Jesus our king has a shepherd's heart and so this morning we're going to look as the scripture has been read and we're going to look and we're going to see the selection of David to be anointed set apart reserved for the crown one day to be placed upon his head um, as king. And I want to put forward to you uh, right out of the gate that there are two ways that we look at life, two ways that we look at issues, two ways that we look at people, most particularly people. We either look at them externally, Based on appearances. We look from the outside and then we begin to move inward. Or we make a a calculated decision just from the get-go. You know, first appearances matter. And sometimes people are not able to get beyond first appearances. But there's a second way to look. And that is the way that is prescribed to Samuel this morning. And that is from the inside then out, to look internally and not be, not make all of our decisions or our judgments based on simply an external glance. So, I, before we moved here, I had a neighbor who was seven foot four. Now think about that for a minute. Seven foot four. That's tall. He became a really good friend, and we would go various places. We might go to a park or a local event. And as we are walking, I'm about 5'11 and a half. I wish I could claim six feet, but I'm, I'm not as tall as, as Jonathan. And so, Five foot eleven and a half next to seven foot four made me look like a child. And people would, I mean, his hands, my hand, 
you know, I can grip maybe a softball. Well, he could grip a basketball like that. Just no problem. And people would come up to us, really him, and they, if they recognized him, then they would ask for his autograph. But if they didn't recognize him, they always said, do you play basketball? You ought to play basketball. You ever think about playing basketball? And he did play basketball. He played for the Utah Jazz. And I asked him at one point, because he became a member of our church that we had started there, much later he would become an elder in that church. He was a defensive uh, player. He played center for the Utah Jazz. And I asked him, I said, how did you come to play basketball? Did you grow up playing basketball? Obviously your height is an asset. And he said, no. He said, never played basketball. I was attending a junior college, getting a vocational degree, learning how to be a Volkswagen mechanic. And I was working in the garage when a man came up to me and he said, you play basketball? You ought to play basketball. You play basketball? And I said, no, I've never played basketball in my life. And he said, well, I am a coach at an area college, and I can guarantee that I can get you a scholarship if you'll come to our college. We'll give you a full ride. You won't have to work as a mechanic. He said, but I've never played basketball. And he says, all we need you to do is stand there and swat the balls down. Just kind of trot down at each end of the court. Well, he would later go on to earn at least two NBA Defensive Player of the Year awards. Utah Jazz with Carl Malone at that time, even played for a while with Pistol Pete Maravich. They would win NBA series. The team was, was great. But I knew him differently. And I knew that he wanted to be known differently. I knew his heart. And I knew his heart by a relationship. And that relationship was made possible because I didn't look at him simply because he was a famous athlete or because he was a powerful, audience-attracting giant of a man. I came to see his heart and fell in love with that heart that was so, so generous, so charitable, so kind to those that had very little. This morning, Samuel is grieving. We find Samuel, the prophet of God, approached by God in verse 1, and God says, how long, how much longer are you going to grieve? Now, if you have a Bible, and this is where having a, a Bible is very, very helpful. We have Bibles in the foyer. If you don't own one, pick one up. Uh, be our guest. Uh, they're, they're free for you if you would like to have one. Um, but we find earlier in chapter 15 that Saul, uh, Samuel is grieving. Verse 35 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, just for the context, we find Samuel grieving and even fearful of a man 
that he had been used by the Lord to call as Israel's first king. And Samuel had led the people in choosing Saul, who it says earlier in 1 Samuel, that they chose a man that while he wasn't seven foot four, that he was head and shoulders above everyone else. So Samuel chose Saul because he was a tall, I believe broad-shouldered man. He was at least, he wasn't, We don't know if he was handsome or what he looked like, but he was attractive to people such that they would look at him and would say, we want you by your appearance, by your bearing, to be our king. We learned that William Wallace, Braveheart, was approximately six foot five in height. And we know that because the broadsword that he used was five feet six inches long. And it would have been made to the size of the men that would wield it. So you can see how William Wallace would attract soldiers and, and, and warriors because most of the men at that time, the average height was about five foot five. So he was a foot or a head taller than everyone else. Saul attracted Samuel's eyes as well as others, and they said, by his appearance, let's make him king. 1 Samuel 15 unfolds the account of where Saul began to serve as a king over Israel in his own strength, out of his own pride, and for his own benefit. He began to, to serve as a king, and he became very fearful of any threat to his position. And he began to act out of those insecurities such that eventually we read that in verse 28, and Samuel said to Saul, Saul is approached by Samuel under God's instruction and he's to tell Saul this, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. In other words, Saul, it's over. It's twilight on your reign. It's over. God has rejected you. You are now disqualified. And it's going to be torn from your hand. And it's going to be given to someone else in the neighborhood. That someone will be David. But at the point that we began this morning, here is Samuel and he's paralyzed by his grief. It's as if he's saying, you know, I can't serve in God's kingdom plan and purposes now. I made a mess of it earlier. I chose the wrong man. I made the wrong decision. And so he grieves over the decision that he made. He grieves over the outcome. And he is left there. And he just, basically he's parked it from participating in God's plan and purposes. And God comes to him and says, I I still have use of you. What are you grieving about? Because it's two parts. Not only am I going to remove Saul, but I am going to raise up someone else in the neighborhood. And I want you 
To not be paralyzed by your grief or regret. I don't want you to, to, to be paralyzed. I want you to be a part of that. I want you to go and look and find the man among Jesse's children. And so, suffice it to say that he has come to see just how insecure Saul is, and so he's fearful. But God gives him, God says, I will meet your fears so that you can serve me. And if you will stop re-imagining you know, and, and rehearsing all of these regrets, and I do that. Sometimes I think, wow. I mean, I used to think, uh, about certain aspects of ministry that I, would ma- I had made in the past such a hash out of it that I would never engage in that ministry again. I remember thinking that one of the church plants that I was a part of, that I'd made such a misstep that I should never plant a church again. But counselors came to me and said, no, we can learn from those things and we can move forward in the ministry, and I did. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I did. And here is Samuel, and he is now moving forward, and God meets him at the point of his fears and says, I will give you a great excuse to go and be with Jesse. Take a heifer, and that means this sacrifice is one more of a praise, just a a general all-round, let's get together and let's praise the Lord in a worship service. And we don't offer so much of the heifer up as a burnt offering as we do eat it. So it's a big barbecue. And so Jesse's going to be invited as well as others. And it's there at that point, and here is the, the heart of this morning's message that I don't want you to miss. We see in verse 6 how Samuel once again goes back to his standard, the way that he picks the one. And in verse 7, the Lord intercedes and says, no, let me tell you what my standard is. Let me tell you how we together are going to pick the one. Verse 6 says that Eliab stood before Samuel and he said, surely this is the one. Now, Eliab, the name, means God is my father. And so Eliab is the firstborn of these seven sons in the lineup before Samuel. He's the very first one, so he is the eldest. And the Bible in the Old Testament, in this system at that time, and it continues in some cultures today, but the firstborn got everything. The firstborn was the favored one, the eldest. And so Eliab is naturally put forward as the one. And he is probably very, very well dressed for this occasion. And there he stands and he's introduced by Jesse. This is Eliab. God is his father, is his name. And so I'm sure that he looked, I'm sure that he looked like someone that Samuel would automatically say, yeah, this guy, this guy, obviously, my choice is going to be easy. Externally, looking at him, sizing him up, he appears to be the one. But the Lord says, no, I reject him. He is not the one. Now, if you were to fast forward 
we'll learn later on in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28, we'll see this next week, that when David comes onto the battlefield where Goliath is, when he comes to bring from shepherding the fold, where he comes at his father's instruction to bring them uh, supplies, Eliab, his oldest brother, shows you his heart. He shows you what's inside of him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard him when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So we've got anger, we've got contempt, those few sheep. You're not important. And we see envy. Your pres- I know your presumption. In other words, you're already starting to act out of that anointing. I was there. I saw you ano- be anointed. But you're no king. And what? Are you trying to be a little king by coming to the battlefield? That's all in Eliab's heart. Samuel would have been mistaken again if he judged a person based on their appearance or even their status or their name. God said, You need to get to the heart. I thought about this. I thought about I make Samuel's mistake all the time. I'm so wowed by either physical appearance. And it can be other than just simply the the physical appearance of a person. It can be their carriage or it can be their status. It can be just that they appear to be very powerful. We can be so wowed by those things particularly in a day and a culture where image is everything, projected image. How can you know a person's heart? How can you get beyond that? That's where in our community at Two Rivers, diagnostic questions or intimate questions become very important. Find out what is in a person's heart. Find out what they feel and they think. And have a safe environment where they actually can expose their heart and be real. God looks from the inside. That's the way of the spirit. It's not the way of the flesh. Um, Before I go to this second point, let me uh, say that, can you imagine, David's not in this lineup. Can you imagine the family that he is in? How dysfunctional it is. Somebody uh, came up. I was talking to someone about this text this last week. And they said, oh yeah, I bet David was a Foo Fighter. Now, I didn't know until they, I I asked them, so what do you mean a Foo Fighter? Foo Fighter. And they said, well, you know, Foo, family of origin. David was, David was someone who he didn't let his abusive, dysfunctional family stop him. He, we never see that. We never see him speaking ill of his family or we never see him. Alexander McLaren, good Scottish minister, says this, Probably the lad, that is David, had the usual lot of most geniuses to grow up among an unloving Congenial, common 
people, a family who understood him very little and probably liked him less. It is a hard school for a person, but where it does not sour one, it makes for strong men and women because they learn the priceless gift of being alone. Even surrounded by family, they learn solitude, which is always the nurse of poetry, heroism, and religion. You hear what he's saying? He is saying that David was a Foo Fighter. David was not included in the lineup because of the regard not only of Eliab, as we see his heart later revealed, but it would have been his own father and probably the other six brothers as well. He's not even invited by his dad to be in this lineup of all lineups. But if you look at verse, if you look at verse uh, 1, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. The English does us a disservice here. But in the Hebrew, which is so nuanced, it has so, it's just got, it's just such a great language. In the Hebrew, where he says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The Hebrew is very quaint here. It's very sweet. It's, God says to Samuel, he says, I see myself, I see me a king in that family. I see me a king in that family. So though da- Jesse's eyes were not even going to consider David, God all along looked into that dysfunctional family. And he sees one that was not even invited first into the lineup. And he says, that's the one that has my eye upon them. I see them. I see them in the, I see the, the nobody. I see the person that's at a great distance. I see the lonely. I see the one in solitude. I see the quiet, obedient, faithful servant. I see the one that is not in the lamblight. I see them, and I see myself royalty in the making. I see myself someone that I can develop to serve me and my kingdom purposes. I see me a king there. But he's unseen in this initial lineup. So Samuel starts to, with verse 7, with God saying, I look at the heart. You men, you're always swayed first by the outside. You need to look at the inside. So Samuel begins. I don't know if he asks a number of diagnostic questions, such as uh, Abinadab stands before him and he says, okay, so tell me about your heart. So tell me, what, what do you think? What do you feel about and toward God? Where are you in relationship with El Shaddai? I don't know if he asked those questions or not, but we read that he goes through all of the lineup. It's not Abinadab, it's not Shema. He gets down to the very end of seven sons, and then he says there in verse 10, he turns uh, in verse 11 to Jesse, and now he's thinking by looking at the inside. He's come to conclude, he doesn't say, okay, let's start again, but he says, do you have any more sons? You know, I don't know what kind of family... Dysfunction is going on here, but is there anyone else? And they said, oh yeah, there is one 
more. There is one more son, and he's tending the flock. Robert Alter, who's a Jewish, he's not a Christian, but he is a Jewish uh, Hebrew scholar, and he has written a great commentary on Genesis and then 1st and 2nd Samuel. And I'll be, I'll be looking at him as we go through this life of David. But Robert Alter says this, By his sheer youth, David has been excluded from consideration. As a kind of male Cinderella left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. But the tending of flocks will have a symbolic implication for the future leader of Israel. And in the Goliath story, it will also prove to have provided him with skills useful in combat. God has, right at this point, like a male Cinderella, David is doing the the smelly, the, the chores that nobody wanted. And it's a marvel to me that he's pulled out of the, the sheep pens. He is anointed. And where does he go after that? Well, this doesn't tell us, but if 1 Samuel 17 is any indication, and it is, he goes back to those same sheep doing the same humble family chores. His brothers are still in the home, still looking good, but he comes, he comes out of the commonplace, dutifully obeying God, serving God there over the sheep. And then once he's anointed, he doesn't build like a junior practice throne. He doesn't publish t-shirts that says, I am the future king. He doesn't tell his brothers, you better practice bowing down to me and serving me. Nope. He really shows his heart by going right back to the flock and serving in all humility. But I believe something else is true, and we find this elsewhere, that it is in the solitude, it is in the sheep uh, pen, it is there in the wilds watching over those sheep, that his relationship with God in the silence, in the solitude, and in the wilderness is forged. And God will carry that all the way into his being a king, a shepherd king, over his people. This morning, there are, I think, three implications for two rivers. I think the first implication for us is corporate worship. Imagine three C's, okay? The first is corporate worship. The second is community. And the third are companions. Corporate worship. When we come here, God is looking at our hearts as well. Matthew 15 finds Jesus telling the Pharisees who had outwardly all the appearance of worshipers. He quotes from Isaiah and he says, in essence, you approach me with lips of worship and praise, but your hearts, your hearts that I'm looking at are far from me. 
our hearts are what God wants us to bring to him in worship. And if our hearts are far from him, you're not fooling God. This can be a very fearful thing. It's just fake. It's just plastic. And we don't want to be that. God values your heart that you bring. Even your fears, even your hurt, even your doubts. But he wants honesty. He wants you to bring those things to him with your heart. Not just the outward show of worship. So, two rivers, we want to bring our hearts very close to God this morning in, in, in each corporate worship service. Secondly, community. James, the book of James, the brother of Jesus, has a lot to say about when people come into your presence getting the best seat because of their status or their wealth or their appearance. While the poor one, the more humble one, is kicked to the curb. In our community, in our community life at Two Rivers, if we understand that God looks at the heart, and like Samuel, he wants to enlist us to look at others' heart and to share our heart with one another as well and get beyond just the physical appearance, then that's going to impact our community. That we're not going to, to look at each other in community except looking at the heart and, and accepting one another at the level of the heart and not simply outward appearances that we won't simply be drawn to the, the powerful person or the talkative person or the handsome person or the influential person just because of the appearance of it. Maybe this time we'll be drawn to the, the ruddy or the runt or the small or the quiet because we're drawn to their heart for God or their heart's need for God. And then lastly, companion. Pornography. Pornography is based all on appearance. It's based all on the outside look at a person and then making a decision based off that. And pornography will assault again and again God's command and His way of looking at things, of looking at the heart. God this morning wants us to not look at each other as flesh and meat and bones. He wants us to look at the heart. He wants us to see the beauty in others beyond the flesh. It lies in the heart. And there are many of you, many of you, who have passed by a prospective relationship our spouse, because all you're doing is looking at the flesh. All you're doing is comparing that flesh to this flesh. All you're doing is, by the standards of airbrushed images, you're looking at a person to see if they measure up, and, if, and you're looking at them as an external beauty. And God says, no, no, no. Don't let the external dissuade you. Go deeper. Look at the heart. And that's where we find the beauty in other people. Now, this morning, I can't think of a, 
a better passage of Scripture than Ezekiel's promise, future promise to a people. A promise where God comes to our hearts that are far from Him. Our hearts that do tend to judge other things externally first. But a promise to us this day that He has delivered upon to create in us a new heart. A heart for Him. We don't have that slide. But God comes and He says in Ezekiel, He says, I will come to you who are far off. You're out in the wilderness. And I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a new heart. And then, so that you can walk with me, I will build on that new heart by the power of my Spirit. David is not chosen because his heart is pure in and of itself. What he's saying is is that it's, it's fertile territory. His heart is fertile and it's receptive to me. And with the power of my Spirit, I can take that heart and I can use him. As we approach this table this morning, we approach as people that we're asking God who sees the heart once again to forgive us, to draw us near to Him, to strengthen our heart even by fresh gifts that come from His Spirit that He might use us for His kingdom purposes. Let's pray.